I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It's really interesting, I think, that she uses the phrase the heart of the house for both the nursery and the kitchen because, you know, those are the centers of the woman's domestic space. We're approaching through this large wrought iron gate. Everything's on a colossal scale here. The grey stone looks even greyer in this light and after a bit of drizzle this morning, it's kind of glistening and dark. One of our favorite places to sit and look out at the fountain is this room here. This rocking chair is where she would sit. And it has been said that sometimes some people have come along and they've seen the chair rocking with nobody in it. Hello and welcome to a special Halloween episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, and we'll soon be releasing a season of brand new episodes. But as a special treat for Halloween, I thought I'd share some of the spookier bits from a conversation I had recently with the journalist and biographer Ruth Franklin, author of Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life. So come with us as we drive away from New York into the forests and mountains of southern Vermont, searching for the haunted mansion that just may have inspired the book, which Neil Gaiman says is the scariest book he's ever read, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Well, we're in the car driving through upstate New York, heading towards southern Vermont, and we're driving, rather appropriately, quite close to Halloween in beautiful autumn colours. The leaves are all changing uh, from green to orange to red. As we head towards the Green Mountain State, it already feels like the landscape is becoming hillier and the mountains are starting to appear in front of us. And this feels like a good moment Ruth, to start talking about the haunting of Hill House. In your biography, you say that Hill House is arguably Shirley Jackson's best novel and certainly her most influential. Uh, Why is that? Why is it so great? So I think part of the reason is because Jackson takes what's, you know, 
already very familiar as the haunted house genre and transforms it into something very different and unfamiliar. On the surface, of course, we've got a classic haunted house story with uh, an investigator, Dr. Montague, a scientist who is undertaking an investigation of the supposed psychic or supernatural manifestations taking place in this house, uh, together with a small crew of fellow investigators he's assembled for this purpose. But Jackson takes that premise and transforms it into what becomes a really profound investigation of fear itself, why we fear the things we do, and what that tells us about who we are really on the deepest level. And the language is so fantastic, isn't it? I think it was Stephen King who said that that opening paragraph is it, it kind of the words transcend words. It's like an epiphany that writers can only dream of reaching that beauty of the language she captures. Yeah, that first paragraph is a wonderful example of one of the ways in which Jackson takes that genre and just runs away with it. It's got this amazing first sentence about absolute reality at Larks and Katie Dids and the idea of conscience. And it's like it dropped in there from some totally different novel. What is this about? But yes. of course, yeah, it's a clue to, you know, the idea that what the visitors are going to find there does involve this confrontation with, with reality and imagination. Yeah, it's so brilliant. Now, the main character in, in The Haunting of Hill House is a it's called Eleanor Vance, and the novel opens with her driving about 200 miles out of New York to an area which could very well be where we are now. And you say in, in, in the biography that the fact that she drives herself is crucial to the novel. Why is that? So she actually makes off with her sister's car. Um, in, in the novel, she's been um, caring for their mother, uh, through a long, long illness, I think um, around a dozen years. Their mother has just died a few months earlier, and since then, Eleanor hasn't really known what to do with herself. She's been at loose ends, living with her sister, and suddenly she gets this invitation to join Dr. Montague and the others at Hill House. It's an invitation that she feels as if she's been waiting for all her life. Finally, her life is going to begin. And for that to happen, she has to strike out on her own in this way. So she, her sister won't give her permission to use the car, so she wakes up early in the morning, takes it, takes the keys, and just drives off into the countryside on her own. And we can tell from the novel this is something Eleanor has never done or even considered ever doing before. This is a wholly new um, assertion of her own agency, of her own independence. Well, like Eleanor, we're driving towards a house which may have been one of the models for Hill House in the novel. Before we arrive, Ruth, can you just introduce us a bit more to this character of Eleanor? What is she like at the beginning of the novel, and, and who is she? Yeah, so as I said, she's, uh, she's sort of at loose ends. Her mother has just died. She's a single woman in her early 30s, which at the time that Jackson lived and wrote the novels was considered quite elderly to be a single woman. Um, and she's waiting for her life to begin. So a lot of the novel takes place from the perspective of Eleanor's interiority within her head. She's the only character whose thoughts we do have any kind of access to, and that's going to be crucially important throughout the novel because we can follow along as the house 
gradually kind of gets its teeth into her, <laughs> as it were. Good phrase. So uh, we view almost everything in the novel from her perspective, from this very narrow, close-in view from behind her eyes. And right from the start, Jackson drops a number of little hints that Eleanor's perspective may not be quite as stable as we would want it to be. You mentioned that early scene where she's driving to Hill House and she has all these fantasies about the houses that she passes along the way where she imagines the kind of life that she might live in each of these places. So we know that the idea of home is very important to her and also very elusive. She doesn't really feel like she has a home. She in some ways feels that she's never really had a home. The experience she had of caring for her mother was, as we find out over the course of the novel, quite torturous and dysfunctional. There's that line where she says, um, the person I hate most in the world now that my mother has died Mm. is my sister. So she she feels totally kind of ostracized from her own family, kind of alone in the world. Absolutely. And she says she's sort of desperately longing to belong to this group that assembles at Hill House. Mm. And yet she's also um, filled with paranoia and anxiety that she's always going to be on the outside. Brilliant. Well, just now we've, we've come down over a little rise and, and the, in front of us the mountains of Vermont are rising up and we're entering the multicolored autumnal forest now as we approach what could have been the model for Hill House. No human eye can isolate the unhappy coincidence of line and place, which suggests evil in the face of a house. And yet somehow a maniac juxtaposition, a badly turned angle, some chance meeting of roof and sky, turned Hill House into a place of despair. So we're coming to the end of our journey now. We're just driving through some trees, a bit like Eleanor approaching Hill House. And in a moment, I think we're going to get a glimpse of the Everett Mansion. Yeah, so you can see we're driving through the former college campus. This used to be Southern Vermont College, um, which is now defunct. But I think these these were dorms. We went by an athletic stadium. Now, when Eleanor first sees Hill House, she brings the car to an abrupt halt because it's almost like a, an assault, almost like a violent uh, surprise when she sees this horrific house. She, she uses the word vile. There it is, completely abandoned. A huge mansion set into the rolling hills of Vermont with the woods behind it. Let's pull up and have a look. Okay, so we're seeing the side view of the Everett Mansion now, which, as you say, until recently was part of Southern Vermont College, um, which went into administration in 2019. So it's been abandoned for a few years now. And it it does remind me of the description of Hill House in in the novel. Uh, Shirley Jackson writes that behind the house, the hills were piled in great pressing masses, flooded with summer green now, rich and still and it is it is here set among the green mountains of vermont surrounded by trees and ruth why is it that you think the everett mansion might have been one of the models for hill house in the novel 
Well, Jackson kept a number of um, postcards and newspaper clippings of old houses, mostly uh, some European castles, some American houses that um, clearly were her inspiration for Hill House. When she was writing the novel, she kept them scotch taped on the wall of her study. And you can still see you now in her archive the marks from the tape. And then afterwards, she collected them in a big folder. And I found a picture of the Everett Mansion among those clippings. Uh, at the time, it belonged to an order of nuns, I believe, called the Holy Cross Novitiate. And I started looking into it. Um, I happened to visit the mansion myself just from the outside when on a research trip here in Bennington, Vermont. And I was struck by the way it reminded me of Hill House when I was in its presence, um, and also by the way that the, some of the stories around the mansion reflected the backstory that Jackson mm. gives the family who originally lived there in Hill House. There is a story of a disputed inheritance and Absolutely. another kind and, of points the, of commonality. So the Everett Mansion was built in in the 1910s, wasn't it, by Edward H. Everett, who was a wealthy glass bottle manufacturer. Um, But yes, there was a disputed will, wasn't there? Because his first wife seems to have died under mysterious circumstances, left him with two young daughters. And there was a nanny who is said to have hanged herself somewhere in the building. The daughters disputed the inheritance. And the, the building is said to be haunted now by a woman in white who may be that first wife of Edward Everett. That's right. Apparently students from Southern Vermont College talk about seeing a woman in white wandering around the campus or also in the woods surrounding it. And that was another thing that reminded me of Hill House. Just the setting of the Everett Mansion is very similar to the way Jackson sets Hill House around the woods with this kind of beautiful undulating green lawn leading up to it and then the woods behind where in Hill House all sorts of frightening things happen. (laughs) As we'll discuss. Well, Eleanor is the first to arrive at Hill House in the novel, and, and the impact of the sight of it is, is dramatic. And then she steps out of the car, as we have, and walks towards the forbidding front door of the mansion. So let's do the same. Let's head towards the entrance to the Everett Mansion. Hill House came around her in a rush. She was enshadowed, and the sound of her feet on the wood of the veranda was an outrage in the utter silence, as though it had been a very long time since feet stamped across the boards of Hill House. She brought her hand up to the heavy iron knocker that had a child's face, determined to make more noise, and yet more, so that Hill House might be very sure she was there and then the door opened without warning. Gosh, it's quite spooky how just abandoned it is, isn't it? You know, it's only four years since the college closed, but they've still got, you know, the dilapidated sign saying campus store, (laughs) the mail room. Yes, you're right, it's sort of falling off. This feels like the perfect day to be visiting this mansion because it's a... It's an overcast, gloomy, grey day. The very weather feels a bit spooky. And gosh, you know, we're approaching through this, this large wrought iron gate. Everything's on a, on a colossal scale here. 
the, the grey stone looks even greyer in this light, and after a bit of drizzle this morning, it's kind of glistening and dark. And now that we're about to enter, look, Ruth, up, up, going up into the hills behind the house is this extremely ornate, kind of Italianate water feature with these levels coming down the hill. You can imagine the water spilling over, but now it's completely derelict and overgrown. The grass and the trees have crept into all the cracks. It looks, there's, you know, there's kind of classical statues peering out of the leaves hmm. in the woods. And down at the bottom here is a dark grotto full of spider's webs and a little figure sitting there in the shadows, a kind of water god, I suppose, hiding in there. Yeah, we can't quite make out what that figure is. But it's certainly it's quite, an, quite an eerie sight. So just before we go into the house, Ruth, why do you think Jackson decided to write a haunted house story? Where did the inspiration come from? Well, she was fascinated by the idea of fear. And there's a line that's often quoted from one of her unpublished letters where she says, I've always loved to use fear. And I think she was really interested in the uses to which fear could be put, the ways in which it provides a kind of access to deeper recesses of the personality. And of course, that's exactly what she winds up doing in The Haunting of Hill House. Um, The book turns out to be much less about the specific details of the haunting, although, you know, there are plenty of those and they're quite spooky, and more about the effects of the haunting of the house on the people who are visiting it. Absolutely. Yes, it's, it's a wonderful exercise in, in sort of psychological fear, isn't it? And psychological horror. But there were a couple of incidents that seemed to have sparked this idea in her mind, weren't there? There was a there was an occasion when she was travelling to New York on the train and she saw a building, or, or at least she said she saw a building out of the window as she came into New York, right? That's right. She and her husband used to travel to New York uh, quite regularly on business. And as Jackson described, travelling through Harlem and looking out the window and seeing a glimpse of a burnt-out tenement and having the feeling that the, there was something wrong with the house, that it was, as she describes Hill House, somehow diseased or vile or evil, marked by something terrible that had happened there. She says she was overwhelmed by the sense that she didn't want to spend another minute in a city with that building in it. There's something wrong about it. Exactly, right. It terrified her. In fact, she saw it, initially she saw it on their trip into the city, And thought about it, she says, the whole time that they visited, that it really obsessed her. And she insisted that they leave on a night train so that she wouldn't have to see it again. (laughs) So there are are some strange and interesting stories. Well, we've been allowed access into the Everett Mansion. So let's head up to the front door now. I, I suspect the door knocker won't be a little child's head as it is in the novel. But let's head in and see what the interior looks like. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Wow. So we've just stepped inside the Everett mansion, and I'm, I'm thrilled to say that we've been allowed access to the building today by Brian Lent of Southwestern Vermont Healthcare Realty and Michael Cohen of Alfred Weissman Real Estate. Thank you both so much for letting us in. You're Thank welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank, yes. So can you tell us a little bit about the house and how, you know, how you're both involved? Basically, uh, the hospital, Southwestern Vermont Medical Center, uh-huh. uh, bought the property at auction to just preserve the property and, and find a better use to reuse. Fantastic. So that's how the hospital got involved. And I was uh, retired at the time, and uh, I had a friend of mine worked at the hospital and asked me if I wanted a, a short-term job, and uh, they asked me to come on and help them with the, uh, taking care of the property and then trying to find a reuse for the, the property. And in the process, we went out to look for other uses of basically the mansion because it's such a, a beautiful you know, yeah. piece of property structure, uh, and it just needs a lot of TLC. Eventually, long story short, they got us involved with uh, AWRE and Michael Cohen. So uh, that's how we're where we are today. And we fell in love with the property. Um, you know, I mean, who couldn't? A Gilded Age mansion with... Uh, Fountain designed by Olmsted on 371 acres on the side of a mountain. Um, we're looking forward to restoring it. You know, it's got a lot of rich history. So does the community. The hospital's been an incredible partner in helping navigate the local municipality and state regulations and stuff like that. It's really um, exciting. It's there's so much potential, isn't there? I'd love to show you around the property because there's some unique features to it that, you know, it's a stone structure, but it was um, built almost like a bank building. It's uh, got a steel frame to it, concrete slab, and the highest end finishes of the time. If you go into the grand ballroom, all the chandeliers, even the doorknobs are sterling silver, not brass. The mantelpieces were hand-carved Italian marble which, you know, in 1911 was probably not so easy to get over here. Um, All the wood in the dining rooms and the hallway was mahogany brought in from Cuba. Um, So we have quite an interesting restoration project (laughs) ahead of us. You've got your work cut out for you. Yes, so we've stepped into the first sort of entrance room of the house, and it's an extraordinarily ornate room with these beautiful cornices around the ceiling, Corinthian columns supporting this very ornate 
ceiling and relief columns set into the walls and these large arched windows out onto a, a kind of gallery at the front of the building and then through the windows there this spectacular view of the Vermont mountains off into the distance. Now we don't know whether Shirley Jackson would have ever seen inside this building. If she'd wanted to she may well have been able to get access but we know as we've said that she knew of the building and, and was interested in it and your mention Michael of the Italian marble that is a detail that she includes in her novel so maybe there was a, a thought about this building. It's a small community even though it's the I believe sixth or seventh largest municipality in the state of Vermont um, with 15,000 people I think the community is fairly small and so, you know, people who were of character and at the time and prominent at the time probably knew each other. Knew each other, I'm sure. Fascinating to think of her maybe coming to a party in this mansion, yes. or who knows. That would be incredible. So, Ruth, let's introduce some of the other characters in this novel. The, the next person to arrive at Hill House is another of these researchers who's been invited called Theodora. And Shirley Jackson tells this great story, doesn't she, about how she was working on this novel, struggling with it. She couldn't think of a name for this character and, and was on the point of giving up writing it and went to bed and woke up in the morning and found a sheet of paper on her desk with words written in her own handwriting saying, Oh no, oh no, Shirley, not dead. Theodora, Theodora. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying. She says, I've never been so frightened. It's such a great story, um, you know, and as with some of these other stories, the reality is actually even more interesting, I think, than the way she told it. Um, you know, I poured through Jackson's notes for Hill House, and they are fascinating. You know, she's got notes outlining the story um, with all of her novels. She went through a lengthy revision process where it often was quite hard for her to find the way in initially. She tried different characters' names. She tried lots of different setups before arriving at, um, you know, what feels now so inevitable. And there were some pages on which she seemed to have made these kinds of uh, sleepwalking notes. There's another essay where she talks about um, waking up in the morning to find that she's written on a piece of paper, dead, dead, in the middle of the night. And I didn't find that one, but I did find a piece of paper on which she had written, family, family. And I think that's so fascinating because, you know, number one, it shows um, how closely she associates the house with the family, right? The house represents the family in so many different ways. And also that the researchers, as we might call them, although they don't really do any kind of formal research, Eleanor, Theodora, and then Luke, who will join them, are like their own little family. They have squabbles. They talk about themselves as family members at certain points. They're all under the watchful eye of Dr. Montague, who is sort of a father figure. But they band together and provide, at least for a time, a kind of family for Eleanor, who feels so lost and alone in the world. That's exactly it, isn't it? So they've been gathered together by Dr. John Montague, who is a paranormal investigator. And he's collected them all for different reasons. Eleanor, because she seems to have been involved in a poltergeist activity in her teenage years. Theodora, because she seems to be a psychic, 
Um, and then Luke, who is a relation of the current owner of the house, and that was one of the owner's stipulations, that a member of the family had to be part of this investigation. But yeah, I love that idea of some of, these, some of this inspiration coming to Shirley Jackson in the night and her writing it down without even realising it. She says after discovering one of these pieces of paper, but she was so frightened, I got out the typewriter and went to work as though something were chasing me which I kind of think something was. Mm. The idea of writing this novel with someone chasing you, it makes it even scarier, I think. Wow, we're just walking through the building. It's, it's like on the outside, it's really on a monumental scale with these huge archways, sweeping staircases, wood panelling everywhere. The structure of this first floor also feels a little bit like the structure of Phil House with we just went sort of in a loop through yes. various rooms and came out where we had started. We absolutely did. This probably will be converted into a suite because then you can open up the balconies on both sides. Oh, that's really nice. This is the uh, wow. The top view. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we've come into what will be a, a bedroom. We're in a room jutting out from the wing of the house with views on all three sides, all three walls of floor-to-ceiling windows, just full of Vermont landscape. So we got contacted right after we did the press conference with the hospital about purchasing the property by the original stonemason. I'm sorry, his grandson. His grandfather was living in New York at the time, and Everett recruited him specifically to build this property, and he ended up raising his family and his children and then grandchildren here locally. And apparently they became friends. What his grandson told me is every year Everett would have him come and fund a project and do whatever you want anywhere in the mountain. And so as you hike the trails behind the property that's part of the Bennington area trail system, there are little vignettes set off that are just like the mansion. They're made of stone or giant stone tables that weigh, you know, 3,000 pounds, and you wonder how they got there. So it's not just this in the walls of the property, but it's scattered throughout. Wow, little, almost like follies in the woods, kind of. Mm -hmm. How fascinating. Yes, I've seen some of them in those woods, yeah. What's this file over here called Ghost Stories? Is that... So there is some, some rumors, I guess, or wives tales going around about Mrs. Everett uh, still haunting the property. And there has been uh, numerous people that say they have seen something or her, uh, but nothing conclusive. And at one point there was uh, ghost hunters or somebody came in and they actually did a program here looking you know, throughout the uh, building and uh, basically it came out that it was non-conclusive that there was any extra uh, spiritual situations or anything else. So uh, it's just been all talk. Um, I can honestly say <laughs> I've been throughout this building at all hours of the day and night, and Mrs. Everett has not come to visit me, which maybe... Although it, I did scare you this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't scared, I was startled. <laughs> Fair enough. Snuck up on me. Every angle is slightly wrong. Ukraine must have detested other people and their sensible, squared-away houses because he made his house to suit his mind. 
angles, which you assume are the right angles you are accustomed to and have every right to expect are true, are actually a fraction of a degree off in one direction or another. Now, Ruth, one of the most memorable and distinctive aspects of Hill House is its very unusual interior, which is extremely unsettling. What, what is the interior of Hill House like? So it's constructed out of rooms that open into other rooms in kind of concentric circles. Some rooms don't have access to the outside. Others do, but there's lots of doors. Um, everything's built sort of not at right angles so that there's a feeling of unsettlingness as you walk through the house. And that, in fact, doors tend to swing shut, apparently, of their own accord, which is explained in the novel as, you know, the angle at which the hinges are set uh, makes that happen. Uh, but yes, this feeling of how easy it is to lose one's bearings in the house, how easy it is to get lost, um, it's not quite clear which room leads to which or where you are at any given moment. The characters get lost all the time. And Dr. Montague has that great line where he says, every angle is slightly wrong. Mm. The house is a masterpiece of architectural misdirection. And I have to say, I do get a sense of that here in the Everett mansion. Every room leads on to at least two or three others, and the angles are strange. They're, they're at very sort of sharp or oblique angles, so it's very easy to lose your way as we're walking around this building. There are a lot of doors, a lot of windows as well, but yes, it does feel a little bit like we're walking through a maze. <laughs> it does. So one particularly spooky location in the interior of Hill House is the nursery on the upstairs floor, which is described at one point as the heart of the house, which mm. is interesting because that's also the way the kitchen is described in We Have Always Lived in the Castle. It's the kind of the central locus of this, of this building. And there's a cold spot outside the nursery, isn't there? Yes, that's the Hill House's most uh, distinguishing characteristic, I think. This large, freezing cold spot just over the threshold to the nursery that gives people chills both physically and emotionally when they step through it. And yeah, that phrase, you know, it's, it's really interesting, I think, that she uses the phrase, the heart of the house, for both the nursery and the kitchen, because, you know, those are the centers of the woman's domestic space. Mm -hmm. And Eleanor's reaction to this cold spot is interesting, isn't it? The others are kind of interested in trying to measure the limits of it, trying to measure the temperature of it. Eleanor's reaction, as she says, it doesn't seem like an impartial cold. I felt it as deliberate, as though something wanted to give me an unpleasant shock. And this is the start of her impression that the house is alive, that the house is an agent that's acting on the characters inside it. Yes, from her first glimpse of Hill House, she has the sense that it's a living being. You know, the house is always described as animate in some ways. It's, it doesn't have a facade, it has a face. It's active, it's got sort of the arched eyebrow, it's, it's looking at the people who are arriving. And Eleanor, from the beginning, does have this special relationship with Hill House, where she does seem to be in tune with it, um, sensing things that the others don't sense. Uh, she can smell the smell of mold in the tower when the others don't notice it. And um, she has a feeling that there are certain spaces where she's allowed to go and where she's not allowed to go. Mm. 
So when the hauntings really start in this novel, what form do they take? Well, initially, they take the form of something banging on the doors, the bedroom doors in the middle of the night. Eleanor and Theodora both wake up during the night and they hear this sound. Initially, it's quieter as whatever it is comes down the hall and then it gets louder and louder. Eventually, they are huddled in Theodora's bed watching as it's so loud. Later, Theodora describes it as a cannonball, mm. uh, as it's so loud and violent that it shakes the door frame and uh, at one point tries to turn the handle of the door, which they've locked. And they hear at that point a laughter, the soft laughter of children. And at other points in the hauntings, Eleanor also will hear the voices of children. It's so scary, isn't it? And we're standing now looking along the hall with the bedrooms off it. We can imagine Eleanor and Theodora behind one of those doors with something on the outside banging on it, the noise of footsteps and, and laughter going up and down the hall that we're looking at now. And yes, and at other points, uh, this mysterious writing appears on the wall, doesn't it? It's seemingly addressed to Eleanor. Right, and it's all about the idea of home. Help mm. Eleanor come home is the message we hear over and over again. And again, um, later in the novel, when Dr. Montague's wife shows up for a moment of comic relief, she's a, a medium who likes to contact spirits using a Ouija board. And again, the word that comes through over and over again is home. What's going on here has to do, it's, it's not just a house, it's a home. It was a family home that got disrupted in this terrible way. Eleanor is a homeless person in search of a place to belong. And it's these two forces that collide and create the disaster that happens in Hill House. I think perhaps the scariest moment, and the moment that Shirley Jackson described as the key line of the novel, is that moment where... Eleanor and Theodora sharing a room and she wakes in the night and hears these sounds and holds Theodora's hand with both her own and then suddenly the light goes on and Theodora's on the other side of the room and Eleanor says, God, God, whose hand was I holding? It's such a chilling, you know, you feel the shivers go down your spine. And why do you think that is such a key line for Jackson? Yeah, you know, she wrote it down in her notes. She literally wrote in her notes, key line of the novel and underlined it. And as with so many things, she never explains it, right? Whose hand was I holding? It's left as a question. Eleanor doesn't know. The reader doesn't know. You know, lots of different theories have been advanced about this. You know, my own idea is that, you know, it's the, it has to do with this idea of intimacy. And, you know, at the same time, desiring intimacy and fearing intimacy. She's longing for this hand to hold onto, um, but she's afraid of the implications of who it might belong to, of what that might demand of her, of what that might involve. And I think, you know, we also can read it as just a sense of the impossibility in some way of knowing even the people who are most intimate and most familiar to us. The idea that the hand on the other side of the bed could well belong to a stranger, even if we think we know who that person is. Mm -hmm. So I think it's aligned with so many potential valences. Now, in a few different places, Shirley Jackson writes that she says, I personally have always believed in ghosts. And somewhere else she says, uh, either I have to believe in ghosts, which I do, or I have to write another kind of novel altogether. But can I ask, do you think there are real ghosts in 
the haunting of hill house or is it in eleanor's head i think it's that sense of possibility that she wants to leave open she doesn't quite want to close that door completely shut on the idea of the supernatural um you know whether or not she believed in literal ghosts as the spirits of the dead who return and haunt us i think throughout her work we get a sense of um forces that we don't quite understand things that happen that are just beyond the scope of our daily lives, our daily existence. You know, there's this one drawing she once did. Um, She actually thought at one point of becoming a cartoonist in the style of a New Yorker cartoonist and did a number of autobiographical drawings chronicling her life, especially her early marriage with Stanley. And there's one drawing in which um, Stanley sits in an armchair and he's saying, Dear, do you believe in demons? And Shirley's standing up, and behind her shoulder is a giant demon who is she's sort of holding back. And I read that as suggesting that the demons are always among us. You know, they're there in the living room behind our shoulder, you know, looking behind us, looking over our shoulders. And it's up to us the extent to which we want to acknowledge them and allow them access to our lives. Robert Wise, who directed the film adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House called The Haunting in 1963. He has a good line where he says, Shirley Jackson writes along that very fine line, just on the edge of reality and unreality. And I think he captures that same line in that film, doesn't he? You're never quite sure whether these are real ghosts or whether it could all be just in the mind. Eleanor sat, looking down at her hands and listened to the sounds of the house. Somewhere upstairs a door swung quietly shut. A bird touched the tower briefly and flew off. In the kitchen the stove was settling and cooling, with little soft creakings. An animal, a rabbit, moved through the bushes by the summer house. She could even hear, with her new awareness of the house, the dust drifting gently in the attics. The wood aging. Again, rumor has it that Mrs. Everett loved the fountain. And one of her favorite places to sit and look out at the fountain is this room here. And this rocking chair is where she would sit. And it has been said that sometimes some people have come along and they've seen the chair rocking with nobody in it. Oh, Brian, that is too spooky. <laughs> so this is her actual rocking chair? <laughs> no, no, it's no, not okay. the original. No. This is not original. Right. And if you look out, you'll see you're looking right out into, at the fountain. So we're standing in a little shadowy, angled room with a small window looking directly out onto the fountain. And in the middle of the room, in a rather unsettling way, there's a rocking chair. And even just the thought of a, of a ghostly figure materializing in that chair is, is terrifying. Gosh. It's a beautiful chair. It is. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Michael, for taking us around the house today and showing us this extraordinary property. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for coming. We really enjoyed showing it to you. So we've just stepped outside the door again, and while we've been inside, the, the heavens have opened and it's, it's pouring with rain now, dripping down the sides of the Everett Mansion, and we're standing underneath a little covered porch area, looking at the rain outside. 
And this is an appropriate place to finish our conversation, Ruth, because the novel ends on the steps of Hill House with Dr. Montague and the others sending Eleanor away, telling her she needs to leave. And why do they think she needs to leave? In what way has the house started to consume Eleanor? Well, she started to act in ways that um, are physically dangerous. Um, She's sort of threatened to throw herself off the stairs of the tower. She's been acting more and more erratic over the course of the last few days. But what the reader sees, which they don't see, is that um, the house has had its grips on her from the very beginning. We know that because we've got access to her interior but by the time that they notice it, even by the time Eleanor starts to realize it, it's already too late. It's funny. It starts with her kind of fearing this, this power of the house. She says at one point, I feel like I'm disappearing inch by inch into this house. And at another point she says, is there still a world somewhere? I can't picture any world but Hill House. But then, almost most sinisterly, she starts to embrace this feeling. She says at one point, I will relinquish my possession of this self of mine, abdicate, give over willingly what I never wanted at all, and whatever it wants of me, it can have, talking about the the house. And then, yeah, in the most sort of sinister moment, she says, the house was waiting now, she thought, and it was waiting for her. No one else could satisfy it. So we won't reveal quite what happens at the end of Hill House, but it's uh, suffice to say the house gets its way in the end. Yes, and you know, what's almost the creepiest thing about it is how the house initially at least seems to agree with Eleanor. She sleeps well, she wakes up looking rested and more attractive than she usually feels. She feels comfortable in Hell House in a way that she hasn't felt previously in her life. And it it is, in a sense, her home. Well, to finish off, Ruth, it's it's been a pleasure and a slightly spooky experience exploring the Everett Mansion with you today. You say in your book that The Haunting of Hill House is her most influential novel. In what ways has this novel influenced the the genre of the ghost story and horror fiction? Well, in one way, I think it really opened it up for women writers in a way that it hadn't been previously. We've got writers like Kelly Link, for instance, who also isn't traditionally a horror writer, but has been deeply influenced by Jackson and the way she depicts women. And also, I think the idea that um, horror is, you know, not just a genre, but a real mode of literary fiction that has capacities that maybe hadn't previously been seen. She takes the gothic novel and brings it up to the present in a way that feels so immediate and so spooky and also so profound. Well, Ruth, what a perfect place to finish our conversation. Thank you so much for guiding us through the the eerie corridors of Hill House. Thank you. Thank you, Henry. Many thanks to Ruth Franklin, to Brian Lent of Southwestern Vermont Healthcare and Michael Cohen of Alfred Weissman Real Estate for allowing us access to the Everett Mansion, to Blackstone Audio for the clips of Bernadette Dunn reading from The Haunting of Hill House, and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producers were Lucy Little and Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. 
To hear the rest of Ruth and my conversation about Shirley Jackson in and around the village of North Bennington where she lived, subscribe to On the Road with Penguin Classics wherever you get your podcasts. In the full episode, we'll be discussing Jackson's masterpiece, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, and her infamous short story, The Lottery, which was first published 75 years ago this year. But for now, I'll leave you with Hill House and the final lines of the novel. Hill House itself, not sane, stood against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years and might stand for eighty more. Within its walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.